What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin's earliest OGs, cryptos, leaders, the brightest crowns in the box, the ones who are really taking this whole technology forward, and the ones who can give us a lot of insight and information to what's happening in the markets today, really help us understand so many deep, deep topics. I love it because now we've covered so many topics across all spectrums of crypto, but also how other industries can be affected by us. The world, it seems like it's we're going through some sort of shift and change. Um, where does Bitcoin and the larger crypto land kind of fall into all of this? And today to talk about that, Ryan Sheftel. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Absolutely. Well, th thank you very much for having me. Of course, you, um, you're the co-founder and CEO of Radical, a, a new quantitative easing, uh, sorry, not a quantitative easing <laughs> firm, a new quantitative trading firm that brings institutional grade experience from Wall Street to crypto markets every, everywhere. You're also a partner at GTS, which is a huge company responsible for building and running uh, fixed income businesses across futures, cash, bonds, derivative markets, across the whole world, you uh, worked at Credit Suisse, and you really, really understand uh, how institutions will have relationships with Bitcoin and crypto. And speaking of, of which, it seems like uh, there's a huge policy shift, especially with the, the Biden administration, which Europe and the other countries around the world have been kind of like out there figuring out what regulatory clarity crypto will have over the next decade, always kind of looking back to the U.S. and saying, where is, you know, what is the U.S. going to do? It seems like there was a huge shift. How do you view kind of the, the policy shift now uh, and the regulatory clarity that's going to come with the recent uh, Biden announcement? You know, from our perspective, and, you know, I think really the, what helps provide clarity and certainty and understanding is, is good for the market. What's good for the market overall? Um, you know, is, is, is good for radical. So we, we support that. We definitely support, um, you know, the concept of, you know, providing some rules of the road and engagement really so that people can ultimately at the end of the day, you know, it's about, it's about the investors and the participants in the market and them having confidence. They, they need to have confidence to know that what they're doing is, is okay. Uh, they need to have confidence that the institutions that they're, you know, transacting with, or that, you know, certainly if they're having custody of the funds are, you know, um, you know, good, reputable companies and operating under a framework that we've kind of, you know, the country sort of agreed is a good, good framework to operate under. So the, the, the idea of getting towards clarity is certainly a good thing. And it does appear that, you know, I, I like to think of it as we're sort of, um, you know, maybe we're getting like the Uber effect. Um, you know, I remember when Uber first came out, you know, people didn't really know. And in many cities, Uber was illegal, you know, technically for the laws on the book. I don't think, you know, the laws on the book ever contemplated something like Uber. Uh, and there was a sort of tension between, you know, the way that the laws had been written when it was just yellow cabs on the street and this new innovation that came about. And for a while there, um, you know, people didn't know. And, you know, I, like I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and I'm not a legal scholar, but I'm pretty sure Uber was illegal in a lot of the markets it was in. I think the first reaction of some of the um, regulators was to say that, you know, this is a bad thing and we need to shut it down and get rid of it. And then, you know, their constituents said, you know, actually, we really like this service. This is a good thing. So over time, the regulators found a way uh, to, you know, update and modernize the regulations to make room for something that, frankly, the American public really liked. 
so I think maybe we're seeing the same thing here in crypto where, you know, it's certainly far bigger and far larger um, than I think a lot of the, you know, perhaps politicians and regulators, you know, kind of conceived. And as they dig into it, they realize what an integral part it is of a lot of people's lives. And, you know, that we really need to figure out how to, how to make it work. You know, there's a, uh, I had like a little bit of a different show written, but there's been a lot of uh, things that are, that are, been kind of coming out in in our world especially in the last few days we saw this uh we saw this new potential uh, uh bill by congress called i think it's called like the e-cash act and it would create a central bank digital currency if you will or or at least explore the idea that's a little bit different and a lot of uh, uh bloomberg and wall street journal are praising it and uh, and talking about it in a very positive way and at the same time i saw um just today that Greenpeace and Ripple are going to be spending a lot of money advertising to a very odd thing to try to move Bitcoin away from proof of work. Is there this like background lobbying going on against, have people said, okay, we can't take down Bitcoin, but maybe we can change out proof of work because that's where the control is decentralized. What's going on here? Well, obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of agents yeah. participating, so I, I can't uh, say I understand. All I know them, you're my guest it. today. I'm like venting <laughs> to you. I'm trying to figure out what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out together in real time. Um, no, I think you know certainly something like a, a central bank digital currency, right? That's sort of a, a funny co-opting of you know it's like taking the term digital currency, which evokes you know decentralization, um, permissionless access, and really it's about you know the the polar opposite, right? A centralized, centrally controlled, um, you know, means of exchange. So I think what you, yeah, what you are getting is, you know, in some ways it's like, okay, well, if cryptocurrencies and digital assets have now taken off, um, you know, people will I think part of what you're, the confusion is oftentimes like in any new phenomenon and Bitcoin and crypto is still, it may not be old to us, but it's still new to the world overall. A lot of people kind of, wear some of the cloak of it to try to get some of the positive allure, even if the goals and things they're trying to do are a little bit different. And in terms of the, the proof of work, proof of stake, uh, certainly I, I will imagine with, you know, with Ethereum making its transition to proof of stake, uh, that will highlight a lot of the differences. And there's certainly people that have, you know, alternative agendas around, you know, energy consumption and other things. And there'll be a lot of conversation about that for a, for a long time. Um, you know, I don't, I don't personally happen to think that, that Bitcoin's going anywhere are going to change the way that it operates. But, you know, uh, you know, as it becomes bigger and more important, more people are going to want to have a say in how it's run. It's, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, a sort of a, you know, kind of low key group decentralized, you know, changing the protocols based upon consensus is yeah. great, but it's going to be under a lot of pressure because as it, you know, as it grows in importance, more people are going to want to say, have a say in how it's run. And I think those people are going to want to have a say from their positions of power, not from decentralization. That that seems like that keeps happening every couple of years. 2016, 2017, we saw the same type of situation uh, with with Bitcoin. And I'm worried that I'm seeing similar rumblings as it becomes, you know, more successful in the front of everyone's mind again. But you're right. And it's like I go back to that famous quote. I think it was Gandhi or someone said it actually someone came on the show and said, it's wrongly attributed to Gandhi, but I still like attributing to Gandhi. Like first they, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, and then they fight you, then you win. We've been at like the laughing stage forever. We haven't seen that. And I don't like look at fighting as, oh, there's going to be violence and war that breaks out. Um, but the attacks will come from 
from kind of within. And I think a lot of it comes from, I hate to say it, but like the vested interests that that already are existing in the traditional world. Uh, similar vested interests that you you left to start your own thing. You started Radical. Like, how cool is that? I want to hear like your story and how you got you got involved. What problem you saw that you decided to start something new? Yeah, sure. And you know, just to recap on you know to kind of yes, and I do believe too. I've read uh, that it was wrongly attributed to Gandhi, but I like it also. So yeah, we'll, we'll let it go. And and also, you know, it's uh, view it as a good thing, right? Um, you know, a lot of people taking a lot of interest and. In, saying, you know, Greenpeace, and again, I don't know exactly the specifics, but them saying, hey, um, we care a lot about the environment, and this is a new thing we want to focus on. Like, you know, a lot of the attention, it's a good thing. You know, the attention means that you matter. Attention means that it's important. And it's just naturally what happens when when things evolve and grow up. And um, it's only going to happen more and more. And I think the real key will be to embrace it, understand that, you know, a lot of these people are coming from a good place. Um, maybe they need education, maybe they need understanding, but, you know, in the end, it's going to be better for everybody, uh, if voices are heard and, you know, there's kind of a, an understanding and a, and a, and a good environment for everything to operate under, um, you know, radical. So radical was formed by the partners of GTS. So by way of my personal background, you know, I've been involved in the financial markets since 95, um, you know, originally started on, on kind of traditional wall street. In fact, so traditional, I like to say my, my, my first job on wall street was Every morning, I had to go to the photocopier machine and photocopy a piece of grid paper that had lines on it because that's what we used to write all our trades down. And my job was to photocopy that sheet of paper, put it in the clipboard. Throughout the day, the, the head trader and myself would write down the trades. And at the end of the day, I would take that clipboard and walk around to all the salespeople that covered the counterparties we traded with, verbally confirm every trade, check it off, and then fax, fax it off to some place. Um, I never even knew where I was faxing it to, where they would actually wow. key it into some Vax mainframe and settle the trade. And like that was, you know, that was the start of my career. So to see that, I mean, people people now will, you know, they'll complain if they don't get a, you know, an, an acknowledgement of their fill of their order, you know, in under a second. Um, you know, <laughs> imagine not knowing for 12 hours whether or not you were actually done. So, you know, that's a world I came from, but I always saw that, you know, having a background in engineering, I could I could constantly see that everything in these markets were sort of ripe for automation and systematizing. And I just had a history of doing that over and over and over again. When we were, I was at Goldman Sachs when, uh, you know, the web and the Netscape browser came out and really took off. And we figured out, you know, okay, how can we have our, our clients and counterparties trade with us over the web? And it was something called a web ET, web electronic trading. We came up with in around 2000 uh, to allow our customers to trade actually mortgage-backed securities. Um, Conform analytics. So, seen a lot of change. And to me, and you asked the question, I mean, you know, when we looked at, you know, when myself and the partners of GTS looked at crypto and the digital currencies, it just seems so um, trend obvious to us that a lot of the skills that we'd brought to bear and the things we had done in the traditional markets in terms of driving efficiency and, and making, you know, kind of, you know, markets more fair and, and equitable for all participants is, you know, something, you know, something that would be valued over in the, in the crypto markets. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different venues that cryptos trade on, a lot of different coins, a lot of different tokens. And, you know, what participants like us and, you know, our peers do in the market is we bring, you know, by arbitraging between different exchanges and running our trading strategies, we can help make sure that, you know, the price of Bitcoin on OKX and FTX and Binance are close enough in line that end investors who just want to just have an account on one and just want to click and trade, you know, can feel comfortable. They're getting, they're getting a square yeah. deal that the, Pricing's in line. 
there's this actually chart that I saw the other day that showed that that you know, so Bitcoin used to trade, still does, but like like someone would deposit Bitcoin on an exchange and then you'd be able to buy and sell it or trade it against it. And so there's this metric of like the amount of Bitcoin that's leaving exchanges. You see it, I don't know, like on crypto Twitter a lot. It's the amount of Bitcoin that's on exchanges is is dropping significantly. The price discovery, uh, people are are holding their Bitcoin and that's definitely happening and you're going to see it move away from exchanges. But the futures market is growing. And so it seems like Bitcoin trading is moving away from these like online spot settled exchanges into institutional futures market. Why do you think that is? I mean, every market, every market that has a futures market associated with it, doesn't matter whether it's the S&P 500, oil, gold, natural gas, the futures are derivatives markets because of the inherent efficiencies in them tend to always have many multiples of the trading volume and often is a better price for price discovery to occur because there are many, I mean, let's just take the crude oil market. I mean, you or I are not going to transact. You know, we, we are, it's going to be very difficult for us or even a, a small size institution to be an active participant in the physical crude market, but yet we have very open access to the futures market. And that allows that kind of open access standardization um, and quite frankly, making it as easy to go long and short so that there's not sort of a bias. And a lot of those features and attributes that futures markets in, in everywhere have had attract more participants, lower trading costs, lower frictions, and just make it a lot easier for people to find price discovery. Again, same thing. I mean, our, our, our you know, US equity markets are you know, premier in the world in terms of listing and liquidity, and yet the S&P 500 futures you know, is, can be a major place where price discovery occurs. So that's, that's a very, and that kind of wraps into what you're saying. These are the these are often the same transitions and same features we've seen crop up in other markets. And that, that's one of the things that really attracted us to it. I mean, what is the relationship going to be between Bitcoin and the rest of, of crypto land? Do you see, we see, we see two, two major moves in the past. We saw Terra and Luna, two top projects in crypto, kind of start to look at Bitcoin as this reserve asset that it could use to to stabilize their uh, algorithmic uh, stable coins. Well, I don't know what's, what's wrong with my speech today. Is that, <laughs> you know, because it seems like over the years, Bitcoin holders are less individual people. As much as I tell people, like, you need to own one to five Bitcoin, you need to own some Bitcoin. It seems like Bitcoin is moving into the hands of these institutions. And we see like a $5 million Bitcoin price. Everyone who's holding at least one will be the institution. What will be the relationship? Between Bitcoin and other and other assets? Yeah, it's like I could almost see a world where where we're lending out our Bitcoin to other institutions to provide liquidity and access. Is is Bitcoin gonna be this global reserve asset? Do you think I mean you you've been around, yeah. like you said, since ninety-five. Is is Bitcoin gonna be this this fad that we're going to look back in five years or, or are we in position now for, for Bitcoin to take a chunk of like the inflation hedge or uh, uh, backing this maybe web three metaverse world that we're about to enter? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great question. And obviously Bitcoin appears to have in the crypto, you know, there's inside the crypto space and then there's versus other assets, certainly inside the crypto space. It certainly appears to be the dominant, you know, if we're looking at store of value, you know, if, if money has a lot of attributes, one of which is store of value, it's certainly, uh, it's, it certainly holds a mantle on store of value right now. And, you know, whereas other chains and, and coins and tokens have gone for kind of, you know, ease of transaction and low cost transaction and 
method of exchange, uh, Bitcoin's been pretty true to its roots. Um, you know, and I know there's been several improvements and there's a Lightning Network. But needless to say, it, it does appear to me, I would, ex I could certainly envision a world of the future where you're right, like Bitcoin sort of takes that place inside the crypto world of being the digital gold, digital US dollar. Other things are kind of leaning on it, pegging against it, um, you know, using it for that sort of stability and store of value while it, you know, whether it's, you know, pick your favorite new level one, you know, it's solving a different problem, but to the extent that part of to solve its problem, it needs to have store of value. It could turn around and utilize Bitcoin for that. So it definitely appears inside the digital world, much like, you know, you know, Ethereum kind of took the man mantle on smart contracts yeah. and, your, you know, and, 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 and things like that and allowing, you know, the, the existence of NFTs. Um, and then, you know, you ask an interesting question, you know, then where does Bitcoin fit in the grander world against other stores of value like that, you know, whether it be gold or commodities, you know, gold for kind of, uh, you know, a store of value, commodities for, you know, the inflation hedge, and obviously the, the dollar is just kind of a, a global reserve currency, kind of TBD. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, quite honest, let's, let's be quite honest with ourselves. I think, um, you know, given what people thought Bitcoin should be in terms of an inflation hedge and a kind of safe haven asset, even two years ago, if you describe the future of the world that we live in right now today, and they would have thought, you know, Bitcoin probably would be three times in price. And yet it's seemed to have only increased its correlation versus other risk assets. So the expectation versus the reality has diverged. Now, is that a temporary phenomenon? Is that one off? Is that because it's early in its growth phase? We don't really know. Um, you know, it, on paper, it has all the right things for an inflation hedge, a, a, a place to kind of a, a place to flee to like treasuries are when things go bad. We haven't seen it play out, but you know, again, yeah. maybe that's just because a lot of people put it in their risk bucket. Uh, Still. And, you know, as it moves from people's risk bucket to inflation bucket, that will change. It's like a slow, it's like a slow moving thing. I, I, a lot of people still look at the stock market as, as a risk bucket, you know, the, you know, especially a lot of older people who have been around since when, when, when equities and everything moved on to online trading, they're still going to be always like that. And I agree with you. Like it's a slow, uh, uh, it's like a self-evident thing, maybe over multiple decades, but something, something happened with, with the dollar, especially with this whole Russia Ukraine war. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out. So you had, you had this like, we have the global reserve currency. We have uh, uh, institutions love it. And then we saw the dollar become this. We, and we saw a lot of Wall Street firms leave Russia almost immediately. Or a lot of people was maybe look, were looking at the dollar of being this neutral thing, uh, not political. Over the long term, was that something that people are going to care about? As the, Will the dollar's dominance like go down? Is that something that is more of like a media, mainstream media, stupid, like, like headline, or is that something, you know, the lay person that we should actually care and worry about? Hmm. It's a great question. And certainly I'll, I'll share my personal two cents without saying, saying that everyone should take it with a, with a major grain of salt, because of a lot of these, you know, major things unfolds, you know, unfold over time. I, I think that look, the global financial system is highly, highly interconnected and highly interdependent. So any change is is slow and deliberate. Certainly in my lifetime, I mean, I've, you know, there's been a rattling of the cage around, um, you know, pricing oil and other major energies and different currencies about central banks wanting to diversify their dollar holdings. I mean, even I remember in the mid late nineties, yeah. you know, it was that, um, you know, central banks were going to dump all their holding of treasuries. And if there's one thing I'll say, I'll say that the sort of, um, 
things end up being right and not right both at the same time. I think that the expectation of people for how fast change will happen is way too short. So in the, you know, kind of one, three, five year horizon, it looks like nothing changes, but yet in the, you know, decades horizon, things, things change a lot more than people think. It's a good point. I never really thought of that because I, it's yeah. only my one adult cycle. Like I, I went from 20, I got big, I got into Bitcoin at 21 and I'm 32 now. So it's like, I've only had one decade of, of an adult cycle. And actually think about that. So think about it. So you got into the Bitcoin cycle 11 years ago. Yes. Okay. So that was, so 2011, that was two years after the financial crisis. The entirety of your experience in Bitcoin has been in a effectively global zero interest rate world. Um, yeah, basically. Which, which is really quite actually an anomaly in the grand scheme of things. So it's, it's very true. You know, this zero interest rate world for so long, for, over such a sustained period of time has really, um, you know, we've, I do think, you know, in many places, we've probably lost a lot of institutional memory about what happened, you know, that actually interest rates can change. And interest rates, uh, central banks will not all be in coordination globally, and interest rates will, will go up and go down. And these are a lot of things that are, I think are outside of the scope of vision of a lot of participants in the market, just because it's been so long since any of them happened. And, you know, Bitcoin aside, you know, as central banks appear to be making moves, you know, whether whether they desire to or are being forced to, you know, based upon, you know, what we're seeing on the headlines with inflation, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what part what parts of the world over the last 10 years have been so built around assumptions of zero rate forever that when it's not zero rate forever, kind of things start getting weird. Um, that, that'll probably be, to me, that's, that's the most interesting thing that'll probably, un, you know, next to unfold is, um, you know, finding out where, where interesting things happen. Like, I don't know if people don't remember, there was a, I'm not going to get the stories totally correct, but like. In the global financial crisis, 08, 09, there was like a money market mutual fund that broke the buck just because they had loaded up a lot on like Lehman Brothers paper. If you think about it, at the time, no one would have thought, oh, well, the problem is going to be breaking the buck of a random money market mutual fund. But that's what happened. And that's what I'm saying. There's oftentimes in our financial system, there's a lot of things that are sort of, you know, you know, for 10 years, you could have built something around an assumption of zero rates forever and been right. And now if you're not right, it's just going to be really interesting to see what breaks as a result. You're right. Like my whole memory is based on, uh, I'm going back. I remember, uh, I was a, you know, the, the financial crisis hit the point where like that, that day when Lehman brothers crashed and everyone was walking out, I had like a one year left of school and I, and I had, um, I had my own startup. This was pre Bitcoin. And I had an electronics company, uh, a deal a day site, pre like woot.com. And um, I was in college and I was paying my way through school. And I remember like when this whole financial crisis hit, this is the world that I wanted to enter. This was the business world that I wanted to enter. And I felt robbed. This was Occupy Wall Street. I felt like, shit, I just spent years of my life learning this stuff. And a bunch of people put a bunch of really bad mortgages and mixed it together with a bunch of good ones. And the whole financial world crashed, housing crashed. And no one had any money. No one had any money to do anything, and I felt robbed. And so when I found Bitcoin, to me, I was like a little bit—not a little bit—I was very gung ho into the whole like we need to change and and fix everything. Now, ten years later, ten years later, uh, we've created this whole new economy and space. I just thank thank God for Bitcoin. Like if it wasn't for that, a lot of people would be in a very very tough spot right now. But at the same time. The world is not like it's gotten better. The economy, there's jobs, 
but it's really hard to pay for things. I was, and tell me if, the, if this is true, if you know people in your world, but I remember when I was in college, one person could work. It could be the husband or the wife and the other person you knew that could, could, could stay home. You could still pay for the house, take care of the kid. There were a lot of discussions around like, like maybe the stay at home dad, the stay at home dad. Fuck. Two people need to work now. Both partners need to work. What stay at home? Who's staying at home? Yeah, you're staying at home to remote work. You can't afford to have a single, single person like household earning money anymore. It doesn't exist. Two people need to work or contribute to some way or another. It's like it's a whole different world now. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think it's a whole different. I think you're highlighting a massive generational dif- difference between someone in your generation, let's call it the post-08 and myself. I mean, let's put it in perspective. And, and you're right. Like when I graduated college, the two-year note was at 6%. I mean, I remember when I was in college or when I graduated college, I could take my uh, paycheck, put it in my Vanguard Money Market Fund account and earn 6% on that. Wow. Effectively as risk. Live off the interest. Exactly. And that's what people did. And now, so I I think the a big dividing line to your point is, you know, I think people that grew up, Anybody over the age of 40 who remembers that world and got it got to sort of live in that world and take advantage of it and maybe accumulate a little, you know, savings during that time have just a totally different perception than someone like yourself who's, you know, you're, you know, the entirety of, you know, anyone, you know, anyone that graduated post-08, the entirety of their earnings career was one of where savings paid zero. Um, you know, I, I have I have kids and it was it was actually kind of funny to try to explain to my teenage kids about like what the purpose of a bank is. Because like they just know a bank is like, well, I, I let them just hold it for me and they charge me a bunch of fees and then I get to get it out with my credit card yeah. or my PayPal. Like the idea that like actually you, the individual, are you're the, you know, the bank kind of works for you. It's supposed to be you gave them something of value called money that they were going to invest elsewhere and they paid you for what you had given them is totally flipped on its head. So you are, I believe you're right. You, you see it in a lot of different things, whether it's the discussion around, you know, student student debt loan forgiveness. You know, this, there's a very big perceptual difference, I think, between people in your generation and an older generation. And that definitely ripples through through crypto and Bitcoin, where, you know, I think it's very reasonable that someone like yourself would say, look at, you know, many of these different places that offer stable coin, you know, you can deposit stable coins and you know, they have their earned products that allow you to earn six, eight, ten percent, or DeFi at twelve to fourteen percent. Um, you know, there it's it's logical that people would look at that and say, "That's really interesting. That's intriguing. I want that." Um, because they can't get it elsewhere in the traditional financial markets or financial system. So, yeah, there is a generational diff- difference, and I think a lot of that's going to, you know, going back to the very first point, I think a lot of that will crop up in the discussions and debates around regulation, uh, where certain people are going to look at it through the lens of you know, their experience for, you know, of being able to use the traditional financial markets uh, for savings and earnings and and a generation of people who just don't have that experience and, and view, you know, crypto and Bitcoin as their method to get there. Whose idea was it to tie this like imaginary, this fund fed rate, this, this fed fund rate to like the rates that we get the most retail of retail customers, like the most retail of retail person who's just keeping couple thousand bucks at the bank to have their rates and mortgages tied to, to the exact, uh, that exact rate. Like whose idea was that? Because that's where it was created that if you go to like Voyager and you get 9%, if you go to Celsius, you're getting 8%. You go to, even you go to, you go to circle.com, the issuer of USDC themselves 
we're offering 5%. And to me, it's like 5%, that's a scam. How could anyone offer 5%? How could anyone offer any percent? I need to know what are you doing with this money? How are you putting this money to work? But like you said, that was never the case. There was always this like, so, and then at the same time, oh, I feel so bad. My brother has been in the market for buying a house for so long. Finally found one. He was finally did the whole process of building house and everything. Closing on it was, was last week or when they get the closing date. And it was the day the Fed raised the rates. His, his mortgage rate went up like quarter of a percent. But that's the difference of $300 a month on his monthly payment. Like that is so significant. So the folks that are pulling the levers in the room know that what they do directly affects people. Anything that you're doing that directly affects people on a day-to-day basis, like that's a very scary thing. It's not affecting some institutional rate. Yeah, I mean, you know, the you know, central bank's use of monetary policy and rates is, uh, you know, the, the purpose is to modify and change behavior. Um, I guess you know, if you so. just go back to kind of, Econ 101, you know, if they feel inflation is running hot and they want to cool down the economy and lower demand, then exactly your point, a a higher rate, you know, if they think housing prices are going up too high or too fast or something like that, then yeah, uh, you know, increasing mortgage rates will, will lower demand. And that, you know, certainly might impact negatively, you know, your brother or specific people like that. But, um, you know, I think that's in some ways that's the intended effect. But where do those laws, where, do the, where does that demand go? If you look at the laws of physics, energy can't just disappear or be created, it's transferred. So that demand, does that directly translate into people who are just now saving their money and they're getting an interest rate now because the banks offer that? Maybe now that's good for, for stable coins and for crypto because now there's yield that can be sustained. You know, a lot of the, the use of uh, monetary policy is a lot about trading off consumption today versus consumption in the future, right? Yeah. If I have, um, you know, if I have $100 and I can put it in the bank and I earn 0% interest, then in some ways I don't really care whether I spend that money today or spend it in the future. But if I'm going to be given, you know, 5 10% interest rate now because, you know, central banks have increased rates, well, now all of a sudden, if I want to consume today, you know, okay, that come, you know, okay, or I could have consumed 10% more in the future. Now, mind you, these are, those are nominal rates. We have to take into account inflation, things like that. Certainly, if uh, inflation is running at 15%, even if you're getting paid 10%, you're better off, you know, you know, you're better off, you know, spending it today. So yeah, it's, um, you're right, you know, energy can't be created or destroyed, but certainly demand can be shifted in time. It, you know, do you want that demand today? Or do, uh, you, do you want that yeah. demand in the future? So like money, I agree with that money is like a, a money can be is more of like a future value of time. You know, that's like a, almost like a battery yeah, sort of- for time. Every day, you're making a decision, I could spend the money I have today, I could consume something today, or I could consume it in the future. And a lot of the use of interest rate and other policy tools is really to try to either push that off into the future, saying, all right, you know, there's too much demand right now. It's driving up inflation. Let's try to have, let's try to push off some of that consumption in the future. And likewise, when, when the economy is, you know, doing poorly, they try to pull that consumption in. They tell people like, you know, like to our first point, geez, you know, if, if you're earning 6% in your, you know, money market mutual fund, well, okay, like, you know, if all of a sudden you go from earning six to five, to four to three to two to one to zero, now all of a sudden you're like, well, you know, well, why not just buy that car today or that TV or consume today? I'm not getting it, you know, I'm not, it doesn't really matter. Oh, yeah. And that, that's kind of the whole point. So 
like going back to, to, to what you said earlier, I, I've been living in a, in a zero interest rate, rate world for my adult memory. Tell me, pre that world, did prices of things also go up in tandem with the interest rates that banks were offering? Because, because price, now I look back on the past 10 years, I, I, I've lived through relative price stability. Yes, and certainly, and, and I'm not a macroeconomist, but even from a layman's perspective, the, you know, the inflation, I mean, we're obviously seeing inflation prints now. We haven't seen it since the 70s. And there's, there's one thing, I think, when prices go up, you know, 1%, 2% a year, and, and that's, you know, people don't really necessarily modify their behavior. But when prices start going up, you know, double digits, they do modify their behavior. And then you get, sometimes you get that, that feedback loop where you're like, well, if I don't, you know, if I don't buy this TV today, it's going to cost 15% more next year. Okay, I'll just buy it today. And if everybody does that, now all of a sudden, it increases the demand for TVs today. And now the manufacturers can't manufacture them enough, fast enough. So they're like, well, we should raise the prices because we're seeing demand. And then you sort of get into this kind of negative feedback loop. And, uh, you know, I think that's why a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of central banks around the world are taking this very seriously. So, so who who's the perfect customer of of Radical? Who who are you trading on behalf of? Like institutional money? Are you are you guys uh, more retail customers? Um, so we trade for our own account. We do not have uh, you know we do not have customers per se. Oh, so her? we're not we're not a hedge fund. We're not a mutual fund. We're not uh, getting paid fees to run money for others. What we do is you know we do you know really two broad things. We first um, you know we transact and participate in the market uh, like anybody else could. You know, we view our, you know, we are a liquidity providers in the market. We transact in the various different uh, exchanges as they exist today, you know, spot, uh, the futures, perpetuals, et cetera. And then secondly is, um, you know, for, um, you know, there are a lot of participants in the market who desire to want to deal directly uh, with someone like ourselves, whether it's because, you know, they have a, a large amount of size to move or just don't want the hassle of dealing on some of the online platforms. And so they'll they'll contact us directly for immediate risk transfer. But in every one of those contexts, you know, our job is where we, you know, we have our price, we have our uh, view on what the price of things should be and what the price for liquidity should be. And we uh, take the other side of trades and, and provide that liquidity. What happens when you hold like, like tokens that come with like governance responsibility, like, like DAOs and stuff. So you're holding like, you know, you guys are trading and you find yourself holding like, you know, some epic, like a, like 5% or like 1% of some outstanding token supply. And they have this epic vote. You think you'll feel like, or not just you, but, but other companies like yourself firms, because this is like a new dynamic. Now money was always like, and even, even, I guess you had it with like, if you're holding a, if you're holding stock and you could be like Carl Icahn and you could be, uh, you could be like Stephen Cohen, you could be like all these different, uh, uh, uh people that want to have a say or, or, or vote. Do you think that the token is going to change all that? Do you think that the DAO token or the security token will change on how we do voting or proxy votes or whatever? Yeah, I mean, DAOs are absolutely fascinating. So as cool. a kind of a hum- human organizational aspect. Uh, yeah, I think you'll see. I think you'll see a lot of things develop. I think you know, certainly for firms like ours, uh, that maybe we you know come on some governance tokens, and that's not really what our business is or what we're looking to do, they'll probably become, you know, you go back to the original thing, derivatives or other markets where people, you know, and I'm just making up, maybe you drop that token in a new, you know, some kind of vault and it gets split into two. And, you know, so one person can have the voting rights and the other person can have the economics of the token. So that, oh, I never you know, thought about the, that. you know, people that really want, you know, that where governance is their thing can get access to it. Um, you know, same thing happens to traditional finance. Obviously you have index, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now. I mean, there's, 
index equity funds really are intended just to like mirror the index. I buy the S&P 500 in the same proportion, but they actually own the stocks and those stocks have proxy votes and director votes and things come up for a vote and how these, all of a sudden you get the kind of the same thing where these index funds are supposed to be in the business of tracking the index for their investors, but now they have this new, now they actually vote. It maybe didn't matter many, many years ago, but now between you know, the largest index uh, index money managers, I mean, they represent an you know, enormous amount of the votes out there in traditional finance. So you'll see that you know, we, we, we've tackled these same problems in traditional finance. I can't say we've come up with a great answer for them yet. Um, crypto being kind of more you know, innovative, we'll probably come up with smart solutions to divide and, and slice things up to make it so that Really, I think whenever you have a token or anything that combines several attributes in one, you know, price performance, utility, governance, um, you know, the crypto landscape seems to be pretty smart about how to like figure out how to like divide it up so that the person who wants each part of that the most yeah. can get it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You really had me thinking a lot about like the zero interest world that I've been living in over the last, you know, 10 or 11 years. And, and I really, I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about how that's going to change maybe like over the next 10 years. But I wanted to ask you a last question. Like, how long do you think Bitcoin or crypto or really this like technology that Satoshi invented needs to needs to exist for it to become like a self-evident thing? Is it a decade? Is it like one human generation? It's a, it's a deep question. It's, a lot of people will be thinking about it after. Because I remember... Yeah. I remember asking, I grew up in like in a very religious Jewish community once. And I remember asking like my rabbi, like, how do you know God exists? And he said, well, the fact that we're talking about him right now is his existence or whatever. I remember that it was like something like that. Yeah. I don't know if I agree or disagree with that, but it was like, huh, like that actually got me to thinking about self-evident. Uh, so it's an interesting question to leave off with. Yeah, I think that. It's, I think you got, you kind of, I think, answered your own question previously. It's, a, it's what you grew up with, right? If you, you know, a generation today that's grown up with it will never know any difference, that'll be self-evident. A generation, you know, many even of my peers who grew up without it, unless you intentionally get involved with it, you could avoid it, you know, you could avoid it. So it's probably more a function of, you know, that's the same question about cell phones. Like, you know, do you think, you know, do you think the world could exist without cell phones? And probably the answer to that question is totally predicated upon when you were born. And whether or not you had a cell phone at that point in your, uh, you know, did you have something when you were 10 years old? If, if when you were probably around 10 or 11 years old, something existed in the world, you probably just conceived that it always existed and it has permanence. So, uh, you know, we're just, it's, it's going to, it's going to evolve over time. You said it was kind of like in one human lifetime. I mean, you know, yeah. humans that, that grow up with something, they believe it to be always true. When I was 10 years old was when the whole Y2K thing happened. So now that I'm thinking about it, I remember saying to myself, like, why is everyone flipping out? I always assumed computers and these, these things that, that were around me always had existed because that's what I grew into. My, that's when your brain turns into like something that can maintain memory or whatever. Wow, that's really great. Yeah, you're right. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Really appreciate the time. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. Of course. I hope to, to see you and meet you, meet you soon in person.